In this episode of the Smart Community Podcast, I have a fantastic conversation with Rachel Smith. Rachel is a previous podcast guest and also a transport planning and demand management consultant. This episode is actually from the audio of the video interview I did with Rachel, which is part of the series I've been doing on YouTube, catching up with previous podcast guests during this time of much change in the world. So if you want to see those interviews, you can head over to our YouTube channel to catch up with what previous podcast guests like Ryan McManus, Debbie Reynolds, Sally Illingworth and Jonathan Reichenthal have been getting up to in the last few months. Now, in this episode, Rachel and I chat about the work she does in demand management and why it's so important to the smart community approach. We discuss what COVID has exposed about the way people live and the relationship between consumerism and mobility. Rachel and I also talk about why it's so important to have foundational systems that underpin the sexy tech solutions, as well as involving end users in the design of the solutions so that we're not just giving more options to people who already have them and continue to leave out the people with the most at stake. We cover the reasons we should be communicating technical things and important decisions in plain English to the public, how we can encourage more informed and engaged citizens, and the power of government directives to shape public behaviour. Rachel also tells us what she learned from her research and the three things required for human behaviour change. We finish our chat discussing why we should forget our fear of failure and put our best and most innovative ideas for post-COVID life forward so that we can shape the future that we want. Because this wasn't a usual podcast interview, Rachel doesn't tell us where to connect with her at the end of this episode, but you can find her on LinkedIn or at her website, and the links will be in the description of the episode. As always, we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns and smart cities. It's where we live, work and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The smart community podcast is what you're looking for. Hi, Rachel. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. It's great to see you. It's been a while since we spoke last. Actually, no, that's a lie. We did speak very recently, but it's been a while since <laughs> I've seen you. Oh, it's, uh, we did the last podcast in September 2018, I think. So, yeah, lots has changed. Oh, so much has changed. And I, yeah, just went and had a bit of a, a look about, we were talking a lot about, yeah, some really practical things, right? And, and what we can do as smart communities. And so much has changed since 2018, but so much has changed in the last two months, really. But yeah, I was really keen to get you on and just talk about, and, you know, specifically your areas of interest and mobility, um, so similarly to mine. But just tell us, well, one, for people who haven't listened to that previous episode, who you are, what you do, and how you're currently going during this time. Yeah, so I'm Rachel Smith. Um, I've got my own consultancy. We specialise in transport planning and demand management. And I guess we work really at the intersection of UN Global Goal 11 and Global Goal 12. So sustainable cities and communities then responsible consumption and production. Um, so we're changing from 
doing transport planning per se to really moving into a niche of demand management. So mm. as we go forward or life beyond COVID, I think it's really important that, the, that we change the way that we use and manage public, private and community infrastructure, resources and services mm -hmm. so that everything is more sustainable and that we can afford to fund things and to keep them going. There's nothing worse than a government or a council or a community starting a project and then not having the funds to keep it going. And I think we've really seen that in the COVID crisis where it's clear that businesses and community groups just don't have that buffer of cash flow or funding to keep something going, which is really sad. So making things sustainable as in that they're long lasting. Mm -hmm. And that's a really interesting point and something that I found quite interesting as well is that a lot of the community are actually living on this kind of bufferless way of life. And, I, you know, it's, it, COVID obviously brought it out into the open, but it, from as long as I can remember, and I definitely attempt to not live this way at all, you know, talking to friends uh, that are living week to week and or even, what did I say the other day, debt to debt, you know. And obviously, you know, that's not about mobility, but it's about life in general and actually, well, what are the, some of the things that we want to change post-COVID? And obviously, COVID is, you know, unprecedented in all the words, but actually it's exposed some of the things that are kind of happening every day in a lot of people's lives. And actually, consumerism is a really important part of understanding mobility and transport. So one of my other hats is I have a book called Underspent because I didn't buy anything new or secondhand in 2014 and change my spending and transform my savings. Because, you know, like lots of people, I didn't want to live without financial security and being sucked in to this consumer cycle. Mm -hmm. And yesterday when I was walking back from walking around the park, you know, some people have put some garden furniture outside on, on the verge. You know, we have curbside collection in Brisbane. And that's great because someone else can take them and repurpose them. But I think one of the things that we've learned is that our cities and communities have built, been built around using the car, driving to the big box retail centre, buying loads of stuff, taking it home, then needing to buy a bigger house further away, needing to commute further. Everything costs more and more. You know, if you've got a bigger house, you fill it with more stuff, you're commuting for maybe an hour and a half each way every day. So people are exhausted. Then they're having to buy, you know, the Uber Eats or the packaged food because they don't have time. So COVID has actually given us a once in a lifetime opportunity to stop and rethink. And it's really hard for a lot of people, you know, millions of people are going to lose their jobs. Millions of people are going to be in huge amounts of debt, which is going to carry on uh, for years and years but it also means that everyone can have a thing and say, well, maybe actually that lifestyle was costing me a lot of money and it was creating a lot of stress. And it was, it was meaning that we were living debt to debt, not even paycheck to paycheck. So yeah, it, it, all of this is interlinked and combined and one thing impacts on another. 
Mm, yeah, that is so true. And you know, when I was doing my Winston Churchill Fellowship, that was something that I really wanted to focus on is that not that pulling transport out, and that's why I called it mobility rather than transport as well, but not pulling transport out because then, you know, if you're only, you're only talking to transport planners or engineers or whatever, whereas when you bring it back into the community where it belongs and has to belong, then you can have conversations with a whole range of other people, including, you know, regular community members, but then all of the other even creative disciplines and um, other professionals that go into building and shaping and maintaining communities. And I think that's so important. And then uh, another step again is not removing it from our everyday lives as well. So, yeah, you make a really good point there. And it would be really good that we are smarter or make smart communities with the resources because nothing is waste. We shouldn't call things waste. Mm. You know, where those chairs go to, I mean, obviously people can't travel much now, but wouldn't it be great if every community had a centre where you could take the stuff that you didn't want um, and maybe there's like a shed in the local park and people take things there. Obviously you need volunteers or someone to manage it or look after it or it's a community facility that everyone is part of managing. And then we redistribute things or repair things or rather than just putting stuff out on the curbside and hoping that someone takes it or the council have to move it. So I think, you know, and we found that after the bush or during the bushfires and after the bushfires, you know, some people had nothing, some people had too much, but we don't really know how to interact in our community or between communities to use resources in a smart way. And I, for me, smart communities isn't just about the technology. Technology can help us communicate, but it's about the practical things and the common sense to solve problems that everyone experiences. Mm. And just as you were talking there, you know, it's demand management, right? And that's yeah. transportation. It's like, you know, you can run a bus, but that doesn't mean people are going to use it. You need to actually look at, well, where's the route going? Do people know how to access the bus? Is it going at the right times? Is the frequency there? You know, and then actually managing managing that. Um, but then on the other side, got the bus there, but then, you know, how are you managing that demand when you're incorporating people working from home, what people's schedules look like, do we want people to be driving at different times rather than at peak hour and all those type of things that we're thinking about. So, I mean, it's similar, that mobility aspect to just, you know, the general community and um, services that we want to have in our communities. Absolutely. And we might say, well, actually, rather than the government funding a bus service, that actually the Bowls Club and the RSL and the football club have all got like a, you know, a 10 or a 15 or a 20 seater vehicle that they don't use when maybe the kids are going to school or in the middle of the day. So why don't we almost look at what mobility services we need in a community, particularly in regional towns where it's more contained? And so what services do we need? And it might be actually that there's lots of women or men who have jobs that don't start at nine and finish at five. They might work from like 11 until three. And then we look at where, what resources we've got or assets we've got. And we say, well, actually the bowls club bus doesn't get used in the daytime. It gets mostly used in the afternoon or the evening. And actually they could do with some extra income. So then we use the bowls club instead. So it's helping everyone rather than the government having a bus that's driving around 
uh, with one person and costing all taxpayers a lot of money. And I think it's all about doing things in a smarter way. Mm. When I talk about mobility as a service, that's what I talk about. And first of all, I talk about that you need mobility as a system to be able to have mobility as a service because it's all well and good to focus on this end product of, you know, subscription, you know, Netflix for commuting, whatever. It's very different to Netflix in my opinion because, you know, it's not streaming things into people's eyeballs that's not necessary. It's actually a necessity that people need to be able to work, play, access health services so it increases quality of life, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, for that model to actually work, you need to focus on the system first. And I think that's where we lack a bit of, I guess, focus or rigor or grunt or something like that, because it's not as sexy, right? We want the sexy thing that's shiny and whatever. And we actually need to focus on the, the kind of mundane stuff that really could improve people's lives. And I think that if we don't have that full system, then there's no way that you'll ever be able to achieve that goal that you want to, or it's only achieved for a certain percent of the population who already had access and already were doing fine. Exactly. And I think how I've seen, or the things that I've seen about mobility as a service in Australia, it's really geared towards, you know, affluent professional people living close to city centres, you know, that you get some public transport, you get some Uber, you get some of this, you get a higher car, and but there are the people who've got cars already. Where I want to see it working is in a regional area where maybe people are working two or three jobs, you know, they're struggling to get their kids to school because they've got competing priorities, and it's actually helping the community, not giving more uh, services and more to people who've already got enough already. And really solving a problem. You know, maybe you're someone who lives in Toowoomba, say, and you've got a cleaning job and you maybe you clean at the motel, then you clean at the pub, then you clean someone's house and you can't afford to run a car. So you're trying to use public transport or walking or cycling, but, you know, you're busy doing lots of different jobs. And how are we making life better for that person? Mm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that that's the real challenge, right? That's a really challenging, complex problem. It's not to say that we can't solve it, but you need to have, and I, and I, I argue that you actually need to have enthusiastic, passionate people that actually want to make a difference. Because yep. if, you're, if it's just business as usual, then you'll just get, you know, kind of a standard, well, we, we put a bus out there and, you know, they didn't use it, so, you know, our job's done. Yeah. Um, not to say that that's what's happening, but necessarily in Toowoomba, but that's what we need to start thinking and talking about a lot more. And I think that's where when you have a smart community approach, you have people that are that really care about yeah. the process, but also you've got multidisciplinary, a multidisciplinary approach. Therefore, you'll be able to you know, take a little bit from this, take a little bit from that, take a little bit from that. And that's where we can actually, you know, solutions that we can never, you know, have thought of before. Exactly. Yeah. And so we've got lots of persistent problems. So people, you know, the trains are overcrowded at peak time. People aren't using the buses in the off peak. We've got traffic congestion. We've got people making short trips, you know, less than two kilometers by car. Those problems have been problems for the last 30, 40, 50 years. We never solved them, which means if a problem is persistent, 
we need to think about solving it in an, in an irrational or a different or a more emotive way because what we're doing now ain't working. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, we need to bring lots of different people together rather than just keeping it as people in transport solving transport problems. Mm-hmm. And I think when we're talking about the community service bus, so like an RSL bus or Bowls Club or whatever, what you need is the data behind that, right? You need to know what when it's available, when you know when it's being used. And that's very simple data to collect. But right now it probably isn't collected. It's collected yeah. in you know the bus driver's head, which is fine, except when you want someone other than the bus driver to make a decision yeah, yeah. about that, you need to pull that out. And and it's very quite you know easy to collect. And I think the word data and what I'm realizing is that it's a bit of a scary word, like, you know, data, yep. oh, ooh. but actually yeah, yeah. a lot of it's very simple and, uh, you know, we yeah. have data everywhere. But, I mean, there are very complex things as well, but just yeah. to start off, you don't need all this complexity. You just need to start collecting and, and then go, oh, okay, now I know that this is when it operates or this is when it's busy, and, but actually we need to take into consideration if it's, I don't know, a public holiday or the weather's bad or whatever, we can actually start then integrating that data into kind of go, we know that it's going to rain on Saturday or we think it's going to rain on Saturday is high prediction. So actually we'll need more buses because people are less likely to walk or whatever it is. And then you start picking up those trends and all those type of things. And some of them will be very obvious and you just go, oh, well, I, I knew this, why would I bother? But then others that you, you know, that the unknown unknown they can provide real insight. And I think that's where we have to go if we want to have, you know, this community-based smart, you know, approach or a community approach to smart technology, uh, which is what the whole smart community thing has to be. And I think we've spent too much time on really complex modelling rather than going out to, you know, Fred who drives the Bowls Club bus and saying, what information can you tell me? And he'll be like, oh, this happens on this day, this happens on this day, this happens here. And so you, you kind of know, but we've spent too much time almost making things really, really hard. When I was in the UK and doing lots of work on safer routes to school, we used to have like a planning for real day in schools with all the kids. And the kids would be like, well, you'd never put the zebra crossing there because that's where, you know, the news agents you know, the truck comes with the newspapers and then that's where like the milk lorry comes with the milk for the corner shop. And this is what, you know, if a seven-year-old knows what the problem is and how to solve it, then we almost need to go back to the people who are the real users rather than making um, sweeping assumptions about what we think happens in a community because the community knows best. They live there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting. And one of the episode actually went out today with Jennifer Sanders from uh, Dallas in, in the US, the audiogram that we put together was around you know, getting kids involved in decision-making at advisory board level. And I just think that's such a brilliant idea. And, you know, some people will be like, oh, you know, you won't get anything or why would you do that? This is for adults and whatever. But actually, you're not, you're not saying, oh, you're the man now making all the decisions. You're yeah. getting their input. And I think people underestimate the value that you get from just talking to the users and particularly children who they don't have all these these societal pressures that you know you build up over the years and they'll just tell you how it is right and they don't and that's a sweeping statement about children but it's 
you'll get all different opinions and thoughts and, and it won't just be, you know, you can't just have one opinion because that won't you know, represent everybody. But I just think that if we can change that a little bit and why not, like I figure, why not invest in something that's going to help children develop these skills get them interested in their communities, get them interested in these professions that actually shape communities, you know, engineering, planning, all these type of things, rather than waiting until, okay, now I'm finished grade 12 and maybe I'll think about, you know, this subject or whatever. But actually they're already invested. And then what you're doing is creating active citizens that can participate in our communities and our smart communities in the future. And if you went out and asked your average person, uh, Woolies or Carls, what a transport planner is, they would have no idea. They think you probably work for a freight company deciding what boxes go on what truck. Yeah. Because we've never, we've never really sold, we've never told people what we do, mm. and we've never really explained. So, you know, and then you're like, oh, it's like town planning, but for transport. And people are like, oh, okay. And so, yeah, we've almost, we've expected people to, to be involved in consultation, but we've never explained to them, well, you know, a roundabout is a roundabout for this reason and traffic mm-hmm. signals are like this for this reason. The bus does this for this reason. We've just said, no, this is what we're doing. Either you like it or you don't and we're building it anyway. And we need to yeah. take people on the journey and help them to understand why we do what we do or why we don't do what we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And it's, I find it really interesting. You know, I talk to even people in my family or whatever. And when I say, well, a roundabout is not just there because someone decided it was there. It was because of the traffic flow and, you know, you have a look at all those things and, you know, it's not traffic light because of these reasons or whatever. Then they go, oh, okay, that makes sense. And I think that once you start explaining this, and, you know, sometimes it's, there's no perfect answer, right? But you've also, if you start, and, and these aren't these aren't super complex. Like you don't have to explain the the formulas behind it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. They're pretty basic. This, well, we use this standard, and if it's to this threshold, then this is a roundabout or whatever. But I think the thing that that is missing is when we, and in everything, we don't measure and monitor to actually say whether it's performing well or not until we have to do another project or whatever, and then we say it's a level of service or whatever or you know that type of thing. Yeah. But I think, um, yeah, it is important to realise that a lot of these complex things that we think are so complex can act, if you can't explain them simply to somebody, then do you really know what, what it is? That, you know, yeah, yeah. And I think that's something that we need to consider because in smart communities, you know, we might be dealing with super advanced technology or whatever. And like you said, it's not, it's, and, and I always talk about, it, it's not about the technology. But if someone asks you how the technology works, you have to be able to explain it really simply because otherwise you won't get buy-in because they'll just go, oh, they were just trying to confuse me or I, don't, I still don't understand. And then we don't have informed citizens. And when people are not informed, they, they aren't empowered. Exactly. And that was the key thing with the media seminar that we went to last week. You know, if mm. you can't explain what you're trying to get, get over to the public in like, two sentences in an email, then you haven't explained it properly. Mm. Um, And I think we all should be bringing it back to that in real plain English. What are you doing and why are you doing it? So that people really understand. I think people just switch off because they think it's too hard. It's too difficult. I don't understand. So they just 
Yeah. They don't, they just don't get involved. Yeah. And also people don't want to feel like they're stupid, you know, like you don't want to get in a conversation where, you know, you don't understand what's going on because, you know, and I think people underestimate not everyone can be academically, you know, smart, but they've got these practical skills that we actually need in our communities. And if we don't have those, like we need this diversity, this tapestry of, of skill sets. And I really feel like one is like, you know, the academic is obviously about is way overvalued a lot of the time and the practical skills are undervalued because of, you know, the way our society works. But actually we need to appreciate them for what they are. And I think once we are able to do that, then we can have what conversations where we're all in the same playing field. Yeah. And when I wrote my decongestion book, which is all about how to catch traffic congestion, basically a travel demand management and behaviour change book, but it was, it was aimed at explaining transport planning and what to do to mayors and councillors and MPs. And loads of councillors and mayors came back to me and said, do you know what, when we get given this job or you win your seat, there's no handbook. So we just get given an office and a desk and, you're, and it's up to your public sector or anyone really just to tell you what to do. So they were like, there's no, we need to learn as well. Though, you know, you don't suddenly become a counsellor and then be, you know, an expert on transport, an expert on drainage, an expert on flooding, an expert on the environment. You know, you're just, a, we need to make it, uh, put things, technical things in plain English for everyone. Okay, let's go back to... And we've had a great conversation, um, but I'm keen to hear how you're currently, you know, situated in the climate we've found ourselves in, and some of the things that you've seen change because of COVID nineteen. Yeah, so we had a lot of overseas work, which are un- unable to go overseas um, or interstate. So that's actually been a huge, a huge change. But we're pivoting or I'm pivoting the business and I'm really hopeful about the future I guess I've been it's easy to be really complacent when there's lots of work and so I've been I've really challenged myself to rethink everything and I've been working like 12 18 hour days I've done my best thinking in the last seven weeks so I'm in week eight because I came back from New Zealand on the 13th of March and then I quarantined And there's been some huge shifts. So there's been loads of people walking and cycling in my area. You know, I've seen people in my neighborhood who now walk to the shopping center. It's like five or seven minutes walk, depending on how quickly you walk. And people are like, oh, it's only like five minutes there. And I was like, well, it always has been. Um, (laughs) But everyone's driven. And, you know, people are chatting, you know, within safe distance, but People are out using the street. My street is a dead-end street to a park and a bikeway. You know, the kids have taken over the road, basically. You know, they're all out there playing. There's chalk, hopscotches, and all kinds of things. Uh, So you can see a real difference, and you can see that people have really slowed down. It's also the street on the other side uh, is a bit of a rat run, or was a bit of a rat run for taxis and Ubers going to and from the airport to Brisbane Airport. And that traffic's completely gone. It's a lot less, well, it's much quieter. So you can actually hear the announcements at Toomble Railway Station now, 
winter across the Kedron Brook. Nighttime, you can definitely hear those. And in fact, I've noticed that they've switched them down because obviously they, it wasn't so important to have them really loud. So some really, really big changes. Whether we maintain that momentum is hard to tell. So the restrictions have been eased. And this weekend, people could drive 50 kilometers. And it was really interesting, like looking on Facebook and seeing that people have gone to the 50 kilometer mark. So it shows that people will change their behavior very quickly. But what it has really shown me is that when the government or someone tells people to do something specifically, they will do it. So we were told that we could walk or ride our bikes. And so people got the bicycle out of the back of the shed and they rode their bicycle or they walked. And now the government said, you can travel 50 kilometers. So people have got in their car and driven. So I think going forward, we really need, as an industry and as our political leaders, we need to be really careful or mindful of the language that we use because it's really clear that when you tell people to do something, they'll do it. So, you know, for the last 50 years, we've been building roads which is basically saying to people, drive your car. And we've built car parks, which is basically telling people, drive your car and park for free. So, you know, if we want people to use public transport or to walk and cycle, we need to tell them to do it mm. in a non-dictatorial way. Mm-hmm. It is interesting. And I think I've been thinking a lot about that as well. And it's like a you know, directive, you must do this. But having that health, you know, that, you know, we need to do this because of a health reason and, you know, explaining all of those things, the reasons why you need to do it, then people are more likely to do it, right? And then the, the social norm, which shifted very quickly, that then enforces, but not in, you know, the police way, but enforces that regulation because we all know what we're supposed to do. And how you do that then in a like all the, the, the reasons why and why not to in a way when you don't have health to, you know, well, an immediate emergency health need, how you do that to actually then influence that behaviour or continue to influence that behaviour. That is an interesting, that will be interesting once we come out the other side of this. Yeah. So mm. I was in New Zealand in the beginning of March Uh, sharing my behavior change research that I was doing last year. And I was writing a book and I don't know what will happen to that now. I've kind of parked it. But what I found last year from doing lots of behavioral interviews with people about transport and finance and housing, you know, like mortgages and health and lifestyle, was that uh, there are three things that make or enable or encourage people to change their behavior. And those three things are one, a compelling reason, two, a strong motive, and three, a burning desire. And some of the, or the kind of most uh, poignant interview that I did was with a lady uh, who worked in finance. And, you know, she used to spend, she spend loads, shop loads, buy loads, because she always said, well, I can always earn more. And then her sister, her younger sister, came to her one day and said, I've paid off my mortgage. And suddenly she had a compelling reason, a strong motive and a burning desire to change her entire family's expenditure to pay off their mortgage. And then I kind of tested those three things with lots of other people from lots of other different industries and reasons to change. 
and it was those three things that kept coming through every time. So, and it works with COVID, you know, we've got a compelling reason. No one wants to be in hospital on a ventilator. We've got a strong motive. No one wants to catch it. And we've got a burning desire because if we can catch this now and not have it spread, then we're all safe and we can go back to work or we, you know, we can get things moving again. So it'll be interesting to see what I do with that after. Yeah, no, that'll be really interesting. I, I mean, I think it will be even more relevant, right? And, and if you can kind of, yeah, find those three things and, yeah, that would be really interesting. I'm just thinking through it in my head. When we you know, do go back to this, again, not saying normal, but when we go out the other side of this, then what will be those reasons? And, and yeah, will it be just business as it was for a lot of people? Um, but then it will actually, I think, I've been thinking about what it will look like after this. And I think there'll be a lot of there'll be, there'll be some camps that just go straight back to what they were doing before and, you know, It'll just be like a flash in the pan kind of thing and, you know, we're, we're back and we're, we're doing how we were doing it before. And then there'll be, like, people that have had to completely transform their businesses and and for better or for worse, like, there'll be some positive and negative, obviously, in, in these other businesses and then what, you know, they'll do. And then there'll be this kind of middle ground where we'll take what we learnt from COVID and implement that in our business to have maybe a stronger buffer or different practices that support, you know, working from home remotely, um, but then also having some resilience and some redundancies in place, et cetera, et cetera. And we be continuing, you know, what we were doing, but there'll be a different way that we do it. Some bits will stay, some bits will go, and then it'll be kind of this robust, more robust, hopefully, business moving forward. That, I mean, there's other camps, obviously, they're just kind of three I've been thinking about. And it's really up to us now to decide, not right now, but think about, and we've been talking a lot about reflection. And I guess what decisions do we want to make right now? What decisions we want to make in the short term and long term future to actually shape that you know, future that we want? And, you know, have we enjoyed the time now? Has it been horrendous? Because for some people, it it has been absolutely horrendous and they right now probably feel like they'll never recover from what has happened. Mm. I think we need to, as much as not, if, if that's not our situation, we need to consider our actions so then we can actually move forward together as this community, right? I think, you know, the collective heaviness that we're feeling, but even, and then that gratitude that we have if we aren't in that situation, but then, you know, if we can still think about how we can make our business, our lives, our families' lives, et cetera, more robust in that way, then we can actually have more, uh, what's the word, more capacity to contribute in the future. Uh, yeah. And there's a really good quote by Milton Friedman, who's the, he was the 1975 Nobel Peace Prize winner. Um, and it's the Change really happens, this is a bit of a summary of it, but change really happens, only really happens in and after a crisis. But that change is dependent on the ideas that are lying around. Mm-hmm. So if we have really rubbish, low-quality ideas hanging around, then we're going to have really rubbish change. So I guess it's up to all of us to step up and put our best ideas on the table. And I've just been writing an article 
about Virgin and tourism and the experience tourism. You know, so obviously people are grieving that the airlines have stopped running and people are worried about the jobs. But also, you know, people have loved or frequent flyer points and, you know, free drinks in the lounge and cheap flights have been part of modern day life. But what about if experiences, you know, using the local rail trails, going out and walking and cycling in your local area or doing, you know, like community cycling weekends or walking weekends and promoting all the long distance hiking trails that we have in Australia. Okay, that's only for a a small margin of the population who would be interested in that at the moment. But that actually might be a better tourism model than everyone getting a $70 flight to Bali to stay in a luxury villa because that doesn't help our economy at all. So Mm. really just putting ideas on the table saying, well, let's use this time to think through what life beyond COVID will be like. Yeah, and I think exploring some of those ideas is really important even if, you know, then they don't end up being the one that we came up with. And I think we should have put less pressure on ourselves to come up with the final solution and but actually just embrace that, you know, we can actually put our ideas out there and like that one idea could then shape another idea and then, you know, you end up in the the solution that you want or whatever. But then also sharing that with your community. So then and, and whether that's online community or your physical community and at the moment like they're all in one or, you, you know, I mean, I have separate, different communities yeah. that I hang out with and whatever. But, yeah, then allowing people then to weigh in and, and, and take what they need from those ideas as well. And I mean, that's how you start innovation and that's how you can actually make real change is doesn't have to, you don't have to have all of the answers yourself. Exactly. And I think one of the biggest sticking points is fear of failure. Mm-hmm. So people say, you know, someone might be sitting at home and then like, I've got this amazing idea, but I'm actually scared that someone will laugh or someone will say, oh, that's stupid or that's too expensive or that's not feasible, that's not practical, that will never work. And because society says, you know, it's all like fear, 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 failure, 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 and the best ideas come from failures. You know, anyone in business has had heaps of failures. It's just picking yourself up and moving on to the next thing or say, Actually, that bit of that idea didn't work, but if I change it to this, this will work. So I think we need to get away from that fear of failure thinking in our society and just put an idea out. Because I might have an idea and then I show it to you, Zoe, and you say, ah, but if you did this, and I'm like, oh, yeah. And now between the two of us, we've got a really great idea, but it's taken two people to kind of figure it out. Mm. And I think that's what we need to be. We need to be forgetting fear and just putting ideas out there. It's so great to chat with you, Rachel. Thank you for coming on to this different version of podcast. It's been, yeah, I've really enjoyed our chat. We've gone a bit here and a bit there, but hey, that's life. And, And I think that we'll catch up again soon, probably very soon in, in some event coming up. Yep. But yeah, it, it was really great chatting with you and I, I'm really enjoying these conversations that I'm having with previous podcast guests because some have gone this way, some have gone that way and, and that's the whole point of these is, is really just sharing stories and ideas and, and, and what that will, you know, we don't know what influence that will have 
when other people watch this. And, and, and I think that just kind of sharing these stories during this time and then beyond uh, will really then help to shape some of the, you know, the, the futures that we want and the communities that we want and the ideas and, and building that networking community. And I think I mean, that's the whole point of these things. So I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast. And I, and, I, and I think it's really good when conversations go anywhere and everywhere. I was listening to uh, Shane Fitzsimmons, who was the New South Wales Rural Fire Service Commissioner and is now the head of recovery. And they were asking him what they thought a leader was. And they, he said, it's about two things. It's about being authentic and showing that you care. And I think that basically sums up what you're doing uh, with, the, with the podcast and what we've talked about today. We've been honest, shown that we really care about the communities we live in and other communities. Mm. So thank you. No, thank you. That's a perfect way to end it. And yeah, I look forward to our next conversation and have a great Monday. Thank uh, you. We'll talk soon. Yeah, for sure. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Are you looking for an engaging speaker, MC, or facilitator for your next big event? Then we've got you covered. Zoe is a go-to speaker, MC, and conversation facilitator with a difference. She's a master at simplifying the complex and making connections you might never see. Book Zoe for your next event. Email hello at mysmart.community or head over to her speaker page, www.mysmart.community forward slash speaking. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community slash podcast. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community. You can also find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn and Twitter at smartcomhq. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we would love for you to leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears and eyes. So thank you for your support. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Community Podcast is what you're looking for.